Blessed Lord, who has caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome back. Delighted to see you all today. I am still half-dressed, as it were, um, because um, the preacher went long today, whoever that was. And, uh, and I need to be ready to run over there, and since, you know, Superman can change in a telephone booth, but since there are no telephone booths anymore, I've, I've got to sort of dress on the fly, so um, trying to jump out of here and then jump into church just makes it a little bit easier some Sundays. We are in Ephesians chapter 4 today, so if you have your Bibles, uh, you can open them up to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to continue our study of Paul's great prayer here at the beginning of this section of the letter. We're going to read through the first six verses today, and then we'll go back and take a look at them in greater detail. So Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. We said that Paul is praying for the church here, for the body of Christ, and he prays with great confidence. We said last week that we can pray for any number of people. We pray for unbelievers. We pray for those in authority over us in terms of the government. And we pray that God's will for their life may be fulfilled. But when we pray for believers, we pray with a greater sense of confidence because we know that God's will for their life, we know what that will is, first of all, and we know that he is going to accomplish that which he has already started. And that's the way Paul prays here. Uh, he recognizes that the church is God's great instrument for the transformation of society. That's what this epistle to the Ephesians is really all about. We said it is a mini-course in theology, but it is a letter that is centered primarily on the church the church as God's or Christ's body in the world. And one of the things that Paul prays for is that the church and the members of the church will walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Now, of course, that word worthy means of worth or of value, but it doesn't mean just of worth or of value. It means of a value or a worth equivalent to something. So, for example, when we talk about being engaged with a worthy opponent, that means a what? An opponent, well, it means a tough opponent, presumably, um, but it means an opponent that is, has skills or possesses skills or gifts that are equivalent to our own. So when Paul talks about living a worthy life, what he means is a life worthy of something else, equivalent to something. And what is that something? Well, he said it is the calling to which we have been called. He wants us to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And we said that this is very important for you and for me. 
Uh, why is it that we live a life worthy of our calling? Well, because Paul is very clear, our calling is to be Christ-like. We are called to be Christ's ambassadors. We pointed out last week that the word ecclesia, from which we get the term ecclesiastical, the word that is translated into English from the Greek as church, literally means called out ones. In the same way that Israel was called out in the Old Testament, so in the New Testament, the believers are called out to be a light to the world. We are called, Paul says elsewhere, to be Christ's ambassadors. That is to say, we represent Christ. And just as an ambassador from a nation can go and bring disrepute on his sending nation by his behavior or by his activity, so Paul is saying that you and I can bring either honor to the one we represent or we can bring disrepute on the one we represent. But as believers, as Christians, as the called out ones, there's no doubt about the fact we are called to represent Jesus Christ in the world. That is our job. And we said that that is an important job. We talked about what it means to be called out. We said it meant to be called out from something, out of darkness into light, out of death into life. And not only called out from something, but Paul is very clear, called out for something. And we used the illustration last week of Saving Private Ryan. We are called out for a special mission in the world. We are called to live a life uh, that is Christ-like so that others may see in us Jesus Christ. Now, what does it look like to live this worthy life? What does it mean to be Christ's ambassadors? What is a Christ-like life? Well, the good news for us is we're not left in any doubt. Paul goes on here in Ephesians chapter 4 to spell it out in detail, the characteristics of the worthy life. And we took a look at one of those last week and ran out of time. Paul says, I, therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with, first of all, all humility. If Jesus Christ was anything, he was humble. He was humble. Now, this is an important virtue for us because we live in a world in which we take great pride in things. Uh, we are a proud people. Uh, but Jesus was not a proud person, although he had every reason to be. But he acted in great humility. And perhaps the greatest example of that, aside from the cross, is that on the night in which he was betrayed, on the night he instituted the Last Supper, that we might remember his sacrifice, the sacrifice and the shedding of his body and his blood, Jesus did what? We're told that he actually got down on his hands and knees, he girded himself about with a towel, and he washed the disciples' feet. What an act of great humility. And that doesn't seem to mean a great deal to us today, but you have to remember that this was the first century world. There were no street cleaners in those days. Uh, you're talking about animal refuse. You're talking about dirt and dust and to wash someone's feet. It's one thing to wash your own feet. It's another thing to have somebody else wash your feet. Uh, it is a very humiliating thing in many respects. Not only is it humbling for the person who experiences it, but can you imagine the person who actually humbles themselves in order to do it? And, of course, that's what Jesus did. And when he did it, he then stood up and said to his disciples, I have set you an example. As I, your master, have served you, so now you are called to serve one another. Do you realize that the Christian life is a life of service? That's what we are called to be. We are called to be servants. And we are to do this in great humility. We use the illustration of Watchman Nee, uh, that uh, Chinese Christian who had his rice fields up on the side of the hill, and he had to pump the water up from the stream down below. 
But night after night, his neighbor would come and break the retaining wall and drain his fields to fill his own. And this went on and on and on until finally the Chinese Christian on the top of the hill didn't know what to do, and he went to the church. He had his rights, and we like to stand on our rights, certain unalienable rights. That's what we talk about in the Declaration of Independence. We're big on our rights, and he had his rights. He had a right to that water. It was public access. And yet the church reminded him that if we only do what is right, we are not very good Christians. We are called to do more than what is right. And so what did he do? He pumped the water out of the stream into his neighbor's fields before he pumped them into his own. And it was such an act of humility that his neighbor asked why he had done it, and he had the opportunity to share the gospel, and his neighbor then became a believer. See, that is humility, and the goal here is not to stand on my rights. The goal is to have the opportunity to introduce someone to Jesus Christ, and that's exactly what happened here. That's what Jesus did for us. But humility is only one characteristic of the Christ-like and worthy life. Another is gentleness. Now, it's translated gentleness in this particular version. In the older versions, it was translated as meekness. I think gentleness is probably a better term for us in the 21st century. Not because meek is a bad word. Uh, actually, meekness is a very good biblical term. The problem with it is that, like with so many other words, it has been corrupted and it has taken on a completely different meaning in our day and age. When we think of the meek, what do we think of? We think of the weak, exactly. When Jesus says, the meek shall inherit the earth, we think, well, that's not exactly true. My experience has been it's not the meek who inherit the earth, it's the weak that inherit the dirt. That's, that's what we have a tendency to think. The meek don't get these things. And yet it's interesting to note that Moses, who perhaps more than any other individual in the Old Testament was used by God, Moses is described as the meekest, the meekest man who had lived. And keep your finger there in Exodus and turn, excuse me, in Ephesians, and turn back to the book of Numbers. It's the fifth book of the Bible, so it's not hard, or the fourth book of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Um, so it's not hard to find. It's Numbers, chapter 12. This is probably not a story that most people are familiar with, but it is very important. And I'll try to unpack it for you a little bit here. Numbers, chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. We're going to go ahead and read through the first 16 verses, really through the chapter there. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. Now that's critical. So everything that follows, you have to understand that this whole thing centers on the fact that Miriam, Moses' sister, and Aaron were speaking against him because of the Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, there's the word, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words, if there is a prophet among you. I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. 
Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And when the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous, like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, Oh, my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, Oh, God, please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, would she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. And after that, the people set out for Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. What's happening here? Well, Moses, of course, was God's chosen instrument. He was the leader of the people. Now, it says he was meek. It is obvious, if you know anything about the life of Moses, that he was anything but weak. It took great courage and stamina to go and face Pharaoh, the most powerful temporal ruler on the face of the earth, and say to him, face to his face, this man who held the future of millions of people in his hands, this vast empire, to say to him, the Lord God says, let my people go. That took great courage. And over and over again, Moses had to exemplify courage in dealing with the people as they grumbled against him and plotted against him. And it was one thing for the people to do that. It was another thing for his own family to do it. We find that his brother and his sister are doing what? They are plotting against him. Why? Because he married the Cushite woman. Now, this is critical. What was it about a Cushite woman that they had a problem with? Well, I'll tell you. They were from basically an area near Ethiopia. The Cushite woman was a black woman. And that's what they were upset about. Here they were, they were brown, and they were complaining about the fact that she was black, and God brings them out. And I want you to notice, Moses is called meek because he does not defend himself. He doesn't take vengeance on his sister. He is silent. He allows all of the ridicule to come his way, and he does nothing about it. He trusts that what? That God will defend him. That's what it means to be meek. It means you don't take vengeance. You recognize that vengeance belongs to what? To God. And boy, did God take vengeance. He said, you three, come on out to the tent of meeting. And they go out to the tent of meeting, and the Lord begins to speak to them. And basically what he says, now this is the Miller Amplified version, you understand. But basically what he says to them is, how dare you speak against my chosen instrument? Who do you think you are? And you, Miriam, of all people, you're brown, she's black, you think brown's better, well, I'll make you white. <laughs> and that is exactly what he did. That's why the text says he made her leprous as snow. a powerful story, isn't it? But I want you to notice that it wasn't Moses defending himself. It was God defending Moses. To be a meek person means that you trust that in the end, God will do what? He will defend you. You needn't 
take vengeance yourself. You needn't defend yourself when people bring all kinds of slanderous lies against you. Jesus said, it is inevitable. As the world has treated me, so I will treat you. How did Jesus stand before Pontius Pilate? And Pilate said, do you not realize that I have the power to condemn you or to free you? Will you not say a word? And what did it say about Jesus? And he stood there silent as a lamb before its shearers. He didn't need to vindicate himself. He trusted that God the Father would do that, and God the Father did it gloriously three days later. See, we are so ready, aren't we, to defend ourselves and defend our honor. People fought duels over this sort of thing in a former age to defend their honor. But here is a case where Moses didn't defend his honor. Jesus didn't defend his honor. They trusted that God alone would do it. That's part of what it means to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And that is why Jesus on another occasion says that we are to become like little children. Children can't defend themselves. They have to trust that someone else will do it. Jesus said, come and submit. In Matthew's gospel, we put it this way. He said, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. There's the word. I am meek. I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When people look at us, do they see gentleness? Do they see the gentleness of Jesus Christ, the meekness of Moses? That's the worthy life. He goes on, going back now to Ephesians, with all gentleness, but also with all patience. Now, patience is one of the most important of all the Christian virtues, but it is also one of the most difficult because we know God's recipe for getting it, don't we? The story is told about a man who came up to a minister after the church service one day. He'd heard the sermon and he wanted the pastor to pray for him. He said, Pastor, I, I, I've got to be honest with you. I, I want patience. And he said, I want you to pray that I'll have patience. And I don't know if he was sincere or whether he was just trying to be holier than thou, but he asked for patience. And the minister said, listen, I'll pray for you right here, right now. Sometimes I do that with people. When people come up to me and say, will you pray for me? I say, well, pray right now. Because I'll be perfectly honest with you. Sometimes my short-term memory is not everything that it should be. And you tell me... Uh, I have to write it down in order to remember it sometimes. And so sometimes I'll say, I'll pray for you right now. Well, that's exactly what the pastor said. I'll pray for you right now. And they bowed their heads, and the pastor began, Oh, Lord, send great tribulation and suffering into the life of this my brother. At which point he found this hand stretching out and said, Whoa, 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 I didn't ask for that. I asked for patience. I didn't ask for affliction or difficulty or trouble. And the man said, Oh, I know. But haven't you read Romans where it says, Affliction worketh endurance and perseverance and patience. See, that is what it takes to be Christ-like. Patience is not an easy virtue. It is an important virtue. Another way of describing it is to say long-suffering. That's another word for patience, long-suffering. And what does long-suffering mean? This is not a trick question. Suffering long, thank you. 
Long suffering means suffering long. And the reason why we have to be patient, we have to be long suffering, is because that is exactly what God is with us. Isn't he? How often do you sin? I'm assuming you all are sinners. I'm just, I'm just going to just automatically assume that. How often do you sin? Every day. Well, that's, that's good for you. Most for me, it's every hour or something like that. I can barely get through a church service without sinning at some point or another, I suppose, at least in thought. And that's one of the reasons why the confession of sin is so important. We acknowledge and we what? Bewail. Bewail what? Our manifold sins and wickedness, which we from time to time most grievously have committed. They're manifold. They're numerous. They're innumerable. And what does God do? He doesn't say, well, you know, you reached your quota. I'm done with you. What does he do? He forgives us over and over again. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is long-suffering with us, and if God is long-suffering with us, how can we be anything but long-suffering with others if we are going to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called? There's a great illustration of this in Matthew's Gospel. Keep your finger there in Ephesians, and again, turn to Matthew. Uh, illustrations are not ends in and of themselves, but they can be like windows. A window lets the light in, and that's what some of these illustrations are designed to do. So in Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 21, we have this account. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. Now what you have to understand is what had happened just before this. And this is a famous painting done by Raphael. I wish I had a bigger image of it, but it's done by Raphael. What does it depict? Anybody know? It's not the Ascension, but that's a good, that's a good guess. It, it looks like the Ascension because Jesus is floating up there on the mountain. It's actually the Transfiguration. All right. Jesus is there shining in resplendent light. This is typical of, of the Renaissance. And he's there, you know, clouded in white light, bathed in light, and you can see the disciples down there on the ground. They've fallen on their faces. And you can see the angels there attending to Jesus. You can see Moses and Elijah. There they are, those great symbols of the Old Testament law and the prophets. So that's what it's supposed to be. And that's true. Jesus took his disciples up on the mountain, and there they were. What we're going to read is what was happening simultaneously. While Jesus is up there shining in resplendent glory, the rest of the disciples are down at the bottom of the mountain. And we're told that this man brings his son who is an epileptic and suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And look at verse 16. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? There it is. How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. 
Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will be able to say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Now Jesus had been teaching these men about faith for quite a while. And here they were. I think it's very interesting that the man said, I brought him to your disciples, and they were not able to cast it out. Why were they not able to do it? Because they didn't have the power to do it. There was only one who had the power to cast out demons and to make the, the, the wounded healed. And who was that? That was Jesus Christ himself. The problem was not that they didn't have faith. The problem is where they were placing their faith. They were placing their faith in their own abilities instead of placing their faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how much faith you have. You can have faith the size of a mustard seed, Jesus said. It's a matter of where you place that faith. I think it was in one of the midweek Bible studies. I, I told a story. It's a true story. When I was interviewing a candidate uh, for ministry um, to serve at St. Helena's years ago, he was a student up at the Shota House Theological Seminary, which is in Wisconsin. And, uh, I mean, it's up in the hinterlands. It's, it's like a monastery up there. And I had to take a flight out there, and then I had to get, rent a car, and I had to drive out there. And I went with another clergyman uh, from St. Helena's. And we got there, and we were going to interview. It was February. Yeah, that's all I need to say, isn't it, really? And uh, we got up there, and it was February. And um, we said to him, we want to take you out to dinner, get to know you, get to know your wife. Um, you pick the restaurant. Pick a nice restaurant, we want to take you for a nice meal. We know what it's like to have seminary food and the refectory and all that. So we'll take you out. So he picked a really nice restaurant. Well, it was great. It was probably one of the best meals I've ever had in my entire life. Enormous restaurant. It was so busy that they had parking attendants directing people. And I pulled up in the car and I wound down the window. And the man's standing there in this heavy parka. And I said, where should I park? And he said, just follow those other cars right out there and you can park on the lake. I said, you can do what? He said, just follow those other cars. You go out there and park on the lake. And I said, on the lake? He said, oh, yeah. I said, you ever lose cars? He said, not often. <laughs> and I thought to myself, heck, it's a rental. What do I care? So I drove out there. And I've got to admit, the whole way through dinner, I'm thinking to myself, is that car going to be there when I get out of here? And sure enough, it was. Well, you see, that's a powerful illustration, isn't it? You can have a little bit of faith in thick ice and you're going to be okay. Or you can have a whole lot of faith in thin ice and you're still going through to the bottom. That was the problem for the disciples. And when we're faced with a crisis, when we're faced with difficulty, what oftentimes happens to our faith? It evaporates. But Jesus doesn't just discard us. Oh, well, you blew it again. I'm finished with you. He is long-suffering. It's really interesting. He said, how much longer must I be with you? And you can almost hear him saying, I guess a while longer. Are you long-suffering? Are there those people? You only have one nerve left, and they're jumping up and down on it. You know those people? Are you long-suffering? Are you patient with them? Because this is what Jesus Christ was. He was gentle. He was long-suffering. He was meek. Paul goes on to say we are to bear with one another. Bearing one another 
in love. You know, sometimes it is harder to deal with fellow believers than it is for unbelievers. When an unbeliever treats you terribly, like that man who mistreated the Chinese Christian, we can easily say, well, they don't know any better. I mean, obviously, they don't know any better because they're unbelievers. They don't understand the worthy life. They don't understand what it means to be Christ-like in their behavior. Our point is to help them understand that, to come to a knowledge of the truth. But sometimes, when it comes to believers, it is a whole different matter. I think I quoted to you the hymn or the poem that says, To love the saints above, oh, that indeed will be glory. But loving the saints below, well, that's another story. Sometimes it's true, isn't it? It is difficult to love our brothers and our sisters. Sometimes the people that get on your last nerve are the members of your own family. And I don't mean your blood family. I mean the Christian family. One of the sad commentaries on the Christian family is that somebody has said that the church is the only army that shoots its own wounded. And so often that is true. Paul says we are to care for one another. And what does that mean? Well, I suppose more than anything else, it means to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, which means you have to be engaged in each other's lives. It's not enough to just say hello to somebody in church on Sunday. We need to know each other. We need to be a family. We need to be concerned for each other. And when one part of the body is suffering, we should all suffer. We're going to get to this in just a little bit, but this is the image that Paul uses, the image of a body. There are many images that he uses in Ephesians to describe the church of Christ, but one is a body. And he uses this image elsewhere. And one of the things that he says is that no part of the body can say to the other part of the body, I have no need of you. You know how this works. Your little toe may be the smallest part of your body, and you may think it's rather inconsequential until you get up at 2 o'clock in the morning to go to the bathroom and you don't turn on the light and you run into the bedpost. And then that little toe may be the smallest part of the body, but the whole body is hurting. If one part of the body is hurting, we are all hurting, my friends. It's as simple as that. The body is not functioning properly unless we are all functioning. So we need to care for one another. We need to love one another. We need to bear one another's burdens. That's part of it. And the other part of it is to forgive. How often? How many times? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 18, this was a question that came up. Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. And if he listens, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others, that everything may be established by the evidence of two or more witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. We are to care for one another. We are to forgive one another. This is the command. But the question is, well, how many times are we to forgive? Well, take a look at John's gospel now. John 21. As soon as I get there, John 21, verses 15 and following. 
When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is a powerful story. On another occasion, Peter had come to Jesus and he said, how many times must I forgive my brother? Seven times? And Jesus said, I tell you, you must forgive him 70 times seven. Now, don't just go ahead and do the math and say, well, that's the only amount of time that I need to, to forgive. Jesus' point this is a Jewish hyperbole. Jesus' point is what? You are to forgive your brother as many times as he sins against you and comes and seeks your forgiveness. You are to forgive him because that is the way that Christ forgives us. And the best example of this is Peter himself. Prior to the Last Supper, Peter had made a promise to Jesus. He said, I will go with you to prison even unto death. All these others may desert you, but Lord, I will never desert you. And you know that Peter, before the cock had crowed, had denied Jesus three times, once to a little girl. Now just try to imagine, after the resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples, and they're sitting around a crackling fire. Peter's probably very subdued at this point because he's embarrassed. Everybody, everybody else had run away as well, but nobody else had made the boast that Peter had made. Nobody else said, we'll never leave you. They did leave him, but they hadn't promised that they wouldn't. So and their, their, their crime was bad, but Peter's was worse. Peter's was a complete failure of moral courage and physical courage, both of those. And the Lord comes to him and he says to Peter, he says, Peter, you can just imagine, they're sitting around the fire, they're having a conversation, they're asking Jesus all these questions about the resurrection, about all of these things and what all of this means. And at one point, Jesus suddenly turns to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter was a little embarrassed, I'm sure, looking around, everybody's eyes on Peter, and Peter says, yes, Lord, I, I love you. Jesus said, okay. Well, and feed my sheep. Peter thought, phew, glad that's over. The conversation continues a little bit more. All of a sudden, Jesus turns to Peter again. He says, Peter, do you love me? All eyes are on Peter. Peter's thinking, I thought we were down this road already. Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, okay, then feed my lambs. A little bit later, Jesus turns to Peter again and says, Peter, do you love me? And the text says that Peter was hurt. He was hurt. Why? Because his faults were being laid bare. And he said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said, well, then go and feed my sheep. Now, what is interesting is the Greek. When Jesus asked that question the first time, and you know that there are different words in Greek that are all translated into English as our word love. The highest form of love is agape. That's the word that is used in John 3.16 for the way that God loved us. God so loved the world, it means self-sacrificing, self-emptying love, the love that thinks not of self but of another first. That's what Peter said. I have that kind of love for you, Jesus. That was the kind of love that Christ had for the world. And Peter, before the crucifixion, said, I'll go with you to prison even to death. I agape you. So when Jesus asked him the question, do you love me? He used the word agape. Do you love me like that, Peter? But there is another word in Greek that gets translated in English as love. It's the word philios, from which we get Philadelphia, which means what? Brotherly love. The city of brotherly love. 
Jesus said, do you agape me? And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you, but he uses philios. A little bit later, Jesus comes back and he says, Peter, do you love me? And he uses agape. And Peter responds, Lord, I love you, but he uses philios. In other words, for the first time, Peter is being brought face to face with his own person, with who he really is. He had promised that he would love Jesus unto death, but he knew he didn't love Jesus like that. He had to admit that he only loved Jesus as a brother. He didn't love Jesus the way he was supposed to love him. And then Jesus, a third time, asks him, Peter, do you love me? But here's what's interesting. At that point, Jesus doesn't use agape. The third time, he comes down to Peter's level, and he says, do you at least love me like a brother, Philios? And Peter said, Lord, you know I love you like that. And that's when Jesus said, well, then we can begin. Let's just clear the plate. Let's just acknowledge who we are. Let's acknowledge the fact that we're not everything we would like to be, and let's admit it. And if you're willing to admit it, we can begin again. That's what God wants from us. He wants honesty. And He's willing to forgive over and over again if that confession is sincere. There is a wideness in God's mercy to him, says, like the wideness of the sea. Are we willing to forgive others? Finally, Paul says, if you're going to live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, you have to bear with one another in love, and you have to maintain the unity of the Holy Spirit. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, you'll notice in your text that Spirit is capitalized. That means the unity of the Holy Spirit. What does God want among His people? More than anything else, He wants unity. In the great high priestly prayer, which I call the real Lord's Prayer, you know, the prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, etc. That is not the Lord's Prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but it's really a misnomer because Jesus never prayed that prayer. He gave it to the disciples as an example for them to pray. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, when you pray, say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It wasn't a prayer that Jesus prayed. Why? Because he didn't need anyone to forgive him his trespasses or his debts because he had none. So it was a model for prayer. We know that Jesus went off and prayed frequently during the course of his three-year ministry, but there's really only one occasion where we get the opportunity to actually hear a prayer that Jesus prayed. And that's that prayer in John chapter 17. It's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. I call it the real Lord's prayer. And one of the things that Jesus prays for is that there would be unity in the body, that Christians would be united because if we are divided, we are prey to the enemy. If there's one thing an enemy wants to do is he wants to divide you. He wants to divide you. And he wants to divide the body of Christ because then we are not nearly as effective. You all know that I'm a Civil War buff. I'll tell you a story from the Civil War. It happened in 1862 as the Confederate Army was marching north into Maryland for what was intended to be an invasion of Pennsylvania. It didn't happen until a year later. But they had encamped around Frederick, Maryland. And as Robert E. Lee was moving his army north uh, into Maryland, he discovered that 
there were some problems with his supply line running back into the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, there was a Union garrison at Harper's Ferry, and there was another one further on in what is now West Virginia. And he knew that if he was going to be successful in this campaign, he had to neutralize those two federal garrisons. And so he wrote a special order called Special Order 191, in which he divided his army into three parts. Now, anybody that knows anything about military science knows that the one thing you never do is to divide your army in the face of an enemy that is larger than you. And the Army of the Potomac was much larger than the Army of Northern Virginia at this point in the war, almost double in size. But Lee was absolutely convinced, he was a bit of a gambler, he was absolutely convinced that he could divide his army into these three parts neutralize these two federal garrisons, and then pull the army back at some convenient spot before the Union Army had an opportunity to catch up with him. And so that was his plan. And he wrote out this order. It was called Special Order 191, and the Confederate Army went off into various parts to attack these Union forces. About three days later, the Union Army moves into Frederick, Maryland, where the Confederate Army had been just a few days before. And two soldiers, Sergeant John M. Bloss and Corporal Barton W. Mitchell, 27th Indiana Regiment, were standing by a fence post, just talking as soldiers were sometimes do, and one of them spied a little bundle over there in the grass. And he went over, and he found a treasure for a Union soldier, southern tobacco. Three cigars wrapped in a piece of paper. Now he was thrilled with the fine unwrapped them, they were about to smoke them, when he looked at the piece of paper and discovered that it was a copy of Robert E. Lee's Special Order 191. When the Confederate Army had pulled out of Frederick, one of the copies of that order had inadvertently been left behind. Well, Sergeant Bloss took it to the company commander, the company commander took it to the regimental commander, the regimental commander to the brigade commander, to the division commander, to the corps commander. By the end of the day, it was in the hands of George B. McClellan, the commander of the Union Army of the Potomac. And when he read that special order and realized how scattered and divided the Confederate Army was, he said, if I cannot now whip Bobby Lee, I am willing to go home. He said, Castiglione will look like nothing compared to this. Now, what was Castiglione? Well, it was a battle in which Napoleon had managed to get between the divided Prussian army and defeat it piece by piece divided. And that's what McClellan was going to do to McClellan. The army was divided, and because it was divided, it was prey. Now, if you want to know what happens, you'll have to come to some historical lecture that I'll give at another point. <laughs> Most of you probably know what happened anyway. But that's the idea you see. Divide and what? Conquer. The enemy is, has divided them, and therefore, they can be conquered. That is exactly what God wants to do to us. He wants to divide the people of God so that we are not as effective. But the question arises, if God wants unity, does he want unity at all costs? I mean, you think about this terrible lawsuit that we find ourselves in with the Episcopal Church, and you say to ourselves, well, doesn't God want unity? Yes, he wants unity, but he does not want unity at all costs. You'll notice that the text says, keep the unity in the what? In the spirit. 
That is to say, unless God the Holy Spirit is there, unless the Word of God is there, there is no real unity. It is a facade. The only way you can have unity is if there is unity in the truth. That's why C.S. Lewis said, a true friend is one with whom you share the highest truth. Everyone else is a mere acquaintance. So if the church is going to be effective, if we are going to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called, we need to bear with one another in love. We need to forgive one another. We need to care for one another. But we also need to maintain the bond of unity in the spirit, the truth, the truth of God's holy word. And there is a powerful stanza in Onward Christian Soldiers that emphasizes this. Onward Christian Soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ the royal master leads against the foe, forward into battle, see his banner go. At the sign of triumph, Satan's host doth flee. On then, Christian soldiers, on to victory. Hell's foundations quiver at the shout of praise. Brothers, lift your voices, loud your anthems raise. What a triumphal story. And in the Methodist hymnal, the new hymnal, I'm told, they got rid of this because they thought that it would be offensive to people who were crippled. I think that's just so tragic. Third stanza, like a mighty army moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided. All one body we. One in hope and doctrine. And one in charity. Onward, Christian soldiers marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. You see, we are not divided. All one body we one in hope and doctrine, one in charity. If you are united in doctrine, if you are united in charity, if you are united in the hope of the gospel, Satan's host can't help but flee. Some years ago when I led a pilgrimage in the footsteps of St. Paul, we're going to do that again coming up in the spring, but when I did it the last time, uh, we visited the Isle of Patmos. That's not a place that's associated with Paul, but it's part of the Greek Isles. And uh, we went there because that's where John was basically imprisoned or exiled. And he wrote the book of Revelation there. And we came out of the cell where John wrote the book of Revelation. Can you imagine? What a, what a marvelous place to be. And we came out, and there was a small amphitheater there, and I had about 60 people. And we all got there, and Pat Gould, our maestro, was our maestro there, let us in singing, holy, holy, holy. And we were halfway through that song when all of a sudden we heard this cacophony of noise behind us. And we could tell that they were singing the same tune, but it was in a different language. And we turned around and there were all of these Korean Christians. And they recognized the song that we were singing and in their own tongue they began to sing it. And then we went into How Great Thou Art, and they knew that one too. And they sang How Great Thou Art. And it was a marvelous picture of the unity of the body of Christ. It was far greater than anything that had divided us. Paul says that's a picture of the worthy life. And when we lead that kind of a life, the world catches a glimpse of Jesus Christ. In coming to know us, they come to know Him, whom to know is life everlasting. That's Paul's prayer for us. Let that be our prayer for St. Philip's.
Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the calling to which we have been called. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would make us worthy of this calling. Make us a people who are willing to bear with one another. A humble people, a gentle people, a patient people, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain unity, but only unity in the truth. That in us, in this place, people may come to know Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.